Trevor Balper and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly appearance is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And in what follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. That's ridiculous, uh, perhaps you're saying. And on the one hand, yes, it is perhaps ridiculous and or absurd. However, so is life. And yet we continue to live it. Indeed, what I say is not false. Dave Cameron does analyze all baseball and what follows. For example, Dave Cameron discusses the Yankees' failings in their American League Championship Series against the Detroit Tigers. Championship, that is, Championship Series. Considers the matchup between the St. Louis Cardinals and San Francisco Giants that happens Monday night and features Matt Cain versus Matt Cain, question mark? Matt Cain, question mark? I force Cameron to meditate briefly on hard-throwing Cardinals right-hander Trevor Rosenthal. We look at a three-team trade that sent both Cliff Pennington and Heath Bell to Arizona Diamondbacks and Chris Young from the Diamondbacks to Oakland. And probably uh, a number of other topics that uh, we discussed. It is uh, Fangraphs Audio. It does feature managing editor Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. Apparently, you were playing a soccer video game during a potential elimination game of the playoffs. Oh, was I doing? <laughs> was I doing that? Uh, I think maybe just during the commercials. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe just during the commercials, Cameron. You got to you got to uh, be entertained at all times. Right. Yeah. No, no. I uh, I watched some of that game. But it, but right. what's more important than that game, Cameron, is the game tonight. Well, I guess. Uh, for one of the teams, they're equally important because that's the Giants. They were down 3-2. Right. But they're not anymore. Tied 3-3. Yep. Game 7 in San Francisco. Yeah. Kyle Loesch of the St. Louis Cardinals versus Matt Cain. Right. Or as I called him in today's post, uh, Matt Cain impersonator. Yeah, Yeah, I read that. Yeah, I decided to you do a little... You weren't, you, you weren't playing a soccer video game? But... I decided to do a little prep work today. Here, very little, not too much. But I decided to read your piece, at least. Listen, true or false, Cameron? Whoever, the team that wins tonight is going to be the team that wants it more. Go. Uh, uh, well, I think that's obviously true. I mean, okay, you know, obviously true. Anytime, anytime you win, you clearly just had more desire than your opponent. You wanted more. Could you think, actually, of a, of a player or team... That uh, didn't seem to want it really, and then uh, but still won anyway, like just in spite of themselves. Um, well, I was, before you added that last sentence, I was considering Yankees last week looked like a team that, uh, if you were ever going to describe a team that didn't look like they wanted to win, it would have been last week's Yankees, but of course they got destroyed. So, uh, trying to remember a team that won that didn't look like they wanted to win, that's uh. Not off the top of my head. I, was, I will say that you stumped me on this one. Yeah, I would be curious about it. Um, I, there was, there, I think that there were those Yankee teams actually. Were there those Yankee teams that hated each other in the seventies? Right, but I don't know that that demonstrated itself on the field. I mean, I wasn't alive then, right. but, uh, so I'm just making assumptions here. But I, my understanding is that they were they just hated each other after the game, and on the on the field they were just fine. They were still good at winning. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's possible. Do you think? Do you really think you don't think that uh, the the fact that they were um, dismissed rather handily from the ALCS, um, you don't think that that is coloring your perception, or do you think that in fact they they did appear to be a team that didn't want to win, or do you think it was in the way that Joe Girardi uh, drew up his lineups, and maybe that's what you're indicating? Yeah, no, I don't actually think the Yankees didn't want to win. I was more talking about appearance. I mean, if you were going to draw up a baseball team that was going to play like they didn't want to win, it would look something like Robinson Cano going over 29 and Nick Fisher getting benched and, uh, you know, um, a team starting Eduardo Nunez at shortstop in, in decisive playoff games. Uh, you know, I think the, the appearance of the Yankees not wanting to win is not the reality. I mean, obviously the Yankees were trying. They just, they were terrible. But, uh, you know, I think, that's one of those instances where you'll you'll see people look at it and say, you know, oh, this team lacks the mental fortitude, and Nick Fisher's a choker, and A-Rod doesn't know how to handle pressure. And these, these are where all these narratives come from, is when a team looks as bad as they did last week. Right. So uh, we've talked before, and, and we might talk again today, uh, with regard to the, the Cardinals-Giants Game 7, of um, managerial strategies that come into play in either a short series, like a, you know, like a playoff series, or uh, in a game like tonight, where it's um, um, you know in it where one team will be eliminated and the other will move on, is that there are certainly differences uh, in managerial strategies. It also seems like um, managers, while you know maybe uh, going to their bullpen more quickly, they might make other they might make errors um, that are sort of the flip side of those smarter decisions. Errors like um, basing a player's Basing their lineup construction on the um, on what a player has done in the last like five games, for example, because I think, if I'm not mistaken, that that game in which the Yankees were finally eliminated uh, by the Tigers uh, featured no Curtis Granderson against a right-handed pitcher, which to me sounds like it's absurd. Maybe it's not. No, right, it is. Especially, I mean, Max Scherzer has really huge right-left splits. Uh, you know, they did start Brett Gardner, who's also a left-hander, so it wasn't like swapping out a left-hander for a right-hander, but when you have a guy like Scherzer who's uh, prone to, you know, giving up home runs to left-handed batters, and you have the left-handed batter with the most home runs in the major leagues this year, you, you'd think you'd want that guy in the lineup. Uh, I think at the, by the end, Joe Girardi was just managing to look like he was managing. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that he didn't think that the moves would help, but I think he felt the pressure to... Um, do something just to do something. I don't think that he uh, saw as an option patience where he was just going to stick with Rodriguez and Granderson and Swisher and say, you know what, they're struggling, but so is Cano, and I'm benching him either. Um, you know, these are the guys who got me here. I'm going to try and win with the lineup that, you know, got me the best record in the American League. I think that they had played so badly the first two games that he just determined that that wasn't an option, and he had to do something, and Brett Gardner was his, you know, was his only real bench player that he could stick in the lineup. Right, and it seems to me as though, um, I don't know, that Brett Gardner might be, because I think uh, maybe Eduardo Nunez is a right-handed batter. Is that true? Uh, yeah, and, you know, the Nunez-Jason Nix thing was forced upon him. I mean, when Jeter got hurt, he didn't really have any good options there unless you were going to play A-Rod at short. And, you know, and whether that's a good option or not is still debatable. And did, did, Cano, did Cano play in that last game as well? Yeah, yeah Cano played the whole series. All right, but he did not hit very well. He hit terribly. He was like the, the the funny thing is like A Rod is you know the poster boy for uh, com- complete lapses. Uh, Cano was the Yankees' worst player the entire postseason. He had three for thirty eight or something. I mean, yeah. Cano was an outright disaster. 
and has escaped any kind of criticism, which is, you know, I mean, he's a good player who had a bad couple of series, so you can kind of understand that he shouldn't, you know, have it thrown down upon him, but the, the relative amount of criticism that went to Granderson, Swisher, and Rodriguez when Cano was worse than all of them is, is kind of fun. So a challenging thing for managers is to say um, the, the the thing that I'm seeing, um, I guess the challenge that's put to them is to say the thing that I'm seeing, is it real, right? So, like, we don't know, but in the case of Curtis Granderson, it seems like, you know, because if he has a flaw in his game, it's a lack of contact sometimes. So he's probably going to have stretches like he did, um, especially during the ALCS. Is, is it something real that I'm seeing, or is it... Uh, you know, or is it just a product of a small sample, right? So, so perhaps with Granderson, it's not real. Um, one other thing that's happening, though, and I think you wrote about this, or someone else at the site, maybe Eno wrote about it, uh, with regard to Matt Cain. I think that maybe Matt Cain, much like his teammate Madison Bumgarner, uh, has he been having issues of late? Yeah, Bumgarner actually got skipped in the NLCS because uh, his velocity has been well down. I wrote about this last week, and uh, he's had five straight starts where his average fastball has been under. 90 miles an hour, um, his slider's flat, he's been getting hit, uh, his strikeout rate's way down, his whiff rate's way down on his slider, which is, you know, by far his best pitch. So uh, I think there's a there's a physical issue with Bumgarner that, it, you know, it might not be injury, it might just be fatigue, but uh, we can't just look at Bumgarner and say, oh, there's nothing wrong there, that's all just going to regress. This isn't necessarily, a, you know, a Swisher or a Cano type issue where it's probably just small sample size. There's seemingly something physically wrong with Madison Bumgarner. Hey, uh, I would like to add, uh, it was not written by Eno Saris. Um, it was written by Michael Barr about Matt Cain uh, on Matt Cain's slider and his release point, uh, and uh, in which Michael Barr uh, argues perhaps that maybe uh, Matt Cain's slider has not been as precise of late, that maybe he's gone back to a release point from 2011 when he was merely above average but not excellent. With regard to Matt Cain, though, uh, you wrote about, uh, and you mentioned this earlier, Kyle Loesch. Uh, Kyle Loesch is... Uh, at least in this particular season, with maybe a, a – well, it depends how you define approach. Uh, in some ways, a different approach than Matt Cain, but perhaps with similar results, you could say. Yeah, I mean, I think the funny thing about Loesch is, uh, you know, he's uh, a pretty generic pitcher. And, you know, he came up through the Twins, uh, so like every other pitcher who came up through the Twins organization in the last 10 years, he throws strikes. He doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. He doesn't give up a, he doesn't get a lot of ground balls. He's just kind of your generic strike throwing man guy with maybe on our fastball and a good changeup. Uh, then he goes to St. Louis and he gets better the last really year and a half, two years. Um, he wasn't great in the, the start of his St. Louis career, but you know, the last couple of years he's been pretty good. You think that, you know, St. Louis took a strike throwing, uh, mediocre stuff guy and turned him into a good pitcher. This is, you know, what Dave Duncan has been doing his whole life. This is what he did with Joel Pinero. This is what he's done with Jake Westbrook. He, you know, he's done this with a lot of guys. Um, and gets them to throw, get a lot of ground balls, throwing a two-seamer, and basically reinvent themselves. Loesch hasn't done that at all. He, he says he's starting to throw a two-seamer, and I believe him. I'm not going to, you know, call him a liar on how he holds the ball. But it hasn't seemed to matter. His ground ball rate's gone down five straight years. Uh, he doesn't get many more ground balls now than he did when he was in Minnesota. And so, you know, for Loesch's success, it seems to not have nearly as much to do with the style in which he's pitching as much as it does um, with the results when batters make contact. And so it's not that they're hitting them on the ground more often, they're actually hitting it in the air a decent amount. It's just not going over the wall and it's getting caught by his fielders. Uh, you know, that's the Matt Cain plan, basically, is um, holding runners, 
you know, or not allowing runners to get on by um, allowing weak contact or, you know, some version of contact that doesn't end badly for the pitcher. Uh, generally, pitchers can't control this. Kane certainly can. Um, it's proven to over six years now. Um, and Loesch, over the last two years, has done a pretty good impersonation of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, will it happen tonight, though? Yeah, I mean, who knows, right? So that's kind of the thing. Is, you know, in one game, you, you really have no idea. I mean, I think Barry Lito versus the Cardinals lineup is maybe the worst possible matchup one could hope for in a playoff series. Lito, huge splits in the splits this year. Right-handers destroyed it. The Cardinals have a very right-handed lineup with a ton of power and had the best numbers against the left-handed pitcher in all of baseball. Um, and, you know, Lito shut them down. So, like... Uh, Trying to predict what's going to happen tonight, I think, is uh, is tough because you know we don't really know what Loesch is. Um, if he's figured out whatever Matt Cain has figured out, then he could probably be a pretty good pitcher against a giant lineup that isn't amazing. Um, but at the same time, you know the Cardinals bullpen is very deep, and they have Adam Wainwright available in the bullpen. So Matheny's big question is going to have to be: How long do I actually go with Kyle Loesch? How much do I believe in Kyle Loesch's performance this year? Uh, you know, and even in, during the playoffs, he's pitched pretty well. Do I actually buy into Kyle Loesch, or do I want to get him out of there after two or three innings and go with the guys who throw 100 miles an hour? Well, as you note, and as you've noted a couple times, uh, there are you know there are a no- number of arguments, especially in an elimination type game, for going to your bullpen early and often. Uh, it seems as though, I mean, apart from Kyle Loesch's abilities, it seems as though with the bullpen that the Cardinals have constructed, there's an even greater reason to do that. Right. I mean, I think that there's no question tonight. You're going to see Trevor Rosenthal, uh, Jason Mott, Edward Mujica, and um, uh, Mitchell Boggs all pitch probably at least an inning apiece. Uh, Rosenthal might go more than an inning. Mott might go more than an inning. I mean, you're looking at probably four, maybe even five innings from those four pitchers. Um, you know, if you're getting half the game from those four, you don't need Lowe's to go very deep in the game, especially if you've got to have a lane right fit. Now they're available to pitch a couple of innings because it's throw day. So, um, you know, I think the the question for Matheny is going to have to be, um, you know, does he want to take a little bit of a gamble, let Loesch go four, five, maybe even start the sixth inning if he's pitching well, and, you know, hold Wayne right off for a potential game one if they win, or do they want to maximize his chances of winning the night and say, you know what, I'd rather have two innings with Loesch or three innings with Loesch and then a couple of innings without a Wayne right and then go to my bullpen. Um, you know, I think either way there's, there's arguments to be had. Um, one... The latter probably maximizes his chance of winning Game 7. The former, if they can win and get Wainwright to Game 1, probably maximizes their chance of winning the World Series. So I know everyone likes to say you have to play the elimination game like there's no tomorrow. There is a tomorrow, though really there's a Wednesday. And I think that, you know, the fact that this isn't the World Series, it at least has to come into consideration that you'd rather have Adam Wainwright starting Game 1 than, you know, Lance win. Trevor Rosenthal throws about 100 miles per hour. Do you like thinking about that? Uh, well, I don't like thinking about it as much as I like watching it. Oh, yeah, fine. I like thinking about it, too, though. Um, okay. I like to do, like, a beautiful painting, maybe, of Trevor Rosenthal throwing the ball 100 miles per hour. If you could actually do that, you should put it on eBay. You would become rich. I don't think rich is the exact thing I would become. But um, he's a that's a guy who uh, was not really a prospect. Uh, I mean, he was a pros- he was prospect-ish, but he throws it he throws it so hard, and he looks like. I mean, is he going to be a starter for them next year? Make a 
Yeah, I mean, he came into the year as a, I think the Baseball America ranked him as the number 11 prospect, so he wasn't off the radar. He was a low pick who, you know, threw in the low 90s, high 80s, who had added velocity, gotten up to the 93, 94, 95 range, and there was even some talk last year that this final start he hit 99 once. So it wasn't that velocity for him was entirely foreign, but the velocity he's shown over the last couple months since the Cardinals called him up and put him in the bullpen, consistently sitting 98, 99, that's new. And uh, so I don't, I don't think this is something that um, the Cardinals can expect Rosenthal to do as a starter. But if you can throw 99 as a starter, you can probably throw 94, 95. Uh, if you can throw 99 as a reliever, you can probably throw 94, 95 as a starter. Uh, and Rosenthal's got a really good curveball. He was awesome in the minors. I know I talked to a, a few scouts who said uh, Rosenthal was one of the best pitchers they saw all year. Um, I know Mike Newman talked to a scout who said he liked him more than Taiwan Walker, who's generally rated as a top five or top ten prospect in the entire game. Um, so I don't think there's any question Rosenthal will eventually get a chance to be a starter again. Whether it's next year or not is, a, is an interesting question because the Cardinals already have a pretty good rotation. Uh, they have Shelby Miller, who's ready to move into the rotation. It used to look like based on how he pitched in the second half and how he's pitched you know, since getting called up. Um, so you know, they don't necessarily need to move Rosenthal to the rotation, but he's good enough to do it. Yeah, let's. Uh, you mentioned uh, we talked a little bit about next year, uh, 2013, with regard to the Cardinals' rotation. Um, by way of segue, this is a, that is a segue, I should say. Uh, similar uh, uh, thing that has got us thinking about 2013, Cameron, is a trade. Uh, I guess kind of one and a half trades have happened, or maybe two. Depends how you want to categorize it, but a real actual trade happened involving three teams: uh, the Diamondbacks, the A's, and the Marlins. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Chris Young has gone from Arizona to Oakland. Yeah. Uh, going yeah. from Miami to Arizona is Heath Bell, uh, the much-embattled closer, uh, who signed probably for too much, uh, was signed for too much by a Marlins team that was uh, kind of trying to flex its muscle a little bit uh, that last offseason. And then uh, Jordi Cabrera is a minor league infielder uh, who, about whom I know very little. Uh, has gone and from, Arizona also got Cliff Pennington from Oakland. Yes, Arizona. So Arizona gets Cliff Pennington, yeah. uh, and I guess they needed a shortstop uh, because uh, right. Stephen Drew was not there, and I think they were relying uh, largely on the contributions of Willie Bloomquist and John McDonald. And it was an all white, crappy, gritty platoon. Yeah, and then they had another uh, another little guy up there too. I think had maybe all of one uh, minor league home run during his career. So. Uh, I guess Pennington is that right? Pennington will now be the is now the shortstop for Arizona. Yeah, I mean I think that you know he probably won't play every single day because they still like Bloomquist and McDonald, but Pennington is going to be the starter. And you know if he can stay healthy, he'll probably start 120, 130 games next year. So now, uh, of course, Kevin Towers is the GM of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Kevin Towers is famous for finding relief pitchers uh, for nothing. And turning them into something. I mean, that's roughly what he's done. I mean, when he showed up, I think that the year before he showed up, Arizona had had maybe like a historically bad uh, bullpen in terms of uh, meltdowns, um, at least so far as we have data for. And they were excellent last year with David Hernandez and J.J. Putz uh, manning the back end of that. Uh, Heath Bell has been good. Uh, he was not particularly good this past season. It, um, I guess my question is, how will he be next year? And then beyond that is what uh, what do we know about the money situation so far uh, so far as the Diamondbacks and Heath Bell are concerned? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question this movie's weird. I mean, Kevin Towers has done a lot of kind of strange things since getting to Arizona, and this just kind of follows in the pattern of things that don't really make any sense. I mean, they've basically said that Heath Bell's going to be their seventh inning guy, so they're going to use him to set up David Hernandez, who's going to be used to set up J.J. Putz. Uh, and they took on $13 million of the $21 million remaining on Heath Bell's salary. So essentially they're paying $6.5 million per year for each of the next two years for a 37-year-old seventh inning setup guy who looked terrible last year. Um, that doesn't make any sense. Like it, To think that you couldn't have gone out in free agency and signed a quality seventh inning reliever for 213 is silly. I mean, the Rangers got Joe Nathan for basically that exact same amount of money last year. Uh, Nathan was coming out an injury, but at least he'd been really good. And, you know, as he continued to show last year, he was really good. And they played him and used him as a closer. Uh, to think that you need to pay $6.5 million a year for a rebound aging setup guy is is bizarre, especially with Tower's ability to identify quality relievers. I mean, I think part of that in San Diego was the ballpark. Anyone with, uh, you know, Petco Park as their background can make a pitcher look pretty good. But, you know, I think um, Towers has shown that he understands that relievers are fungible assets that can easily be exchanged one year from the next. And uh, why he would commit $6.5 million a year uh, to Heat Bell, um, I don't I don't understand, to be honest yeah. with you. I think it's just a, it's a move that defies logic a little bit. Right, and so... But again, because he's been so good at finding scrap uh, scrap heap type relief pitchers and turning them into uh, like commodities, and now that he's signed the pitcher who's essentially the exact opposite of that, that does you're like, whoa, Kevin Towers has done smart things before, especially with regard to relief pitchers. Um, it is a mystery, but are you I, if you were to come up with one reason, if you were to look around and to apprehend one reason why he might be doing this. Uh, giving Kevin Towers the benefit of the doubt in this situation, what do you think it would be? Well, I, my guess is that he has a decent amount of money to spend this winter um, by unloading uh, Chris Young. They saved $8 million approximately. Um, you know, they obviously didn't pick up Stephen Drew's option after they traded him, so he's not back. That saves him a decent amount of money. So I think that Kevin Towers has a little bit of financial flexibility, looked at the free agent market, looked at his roster, and decided he didn't really want to spend any of it on free agents or uh, there wasn't any obvious position where um, he really wanted to exercise his money. I mean, when we talked about the free agent crop is especially strong this year in the outfield, Arizona already thinks they have too many outfielders. They're trading outfielders away and they dumped Chris Young in Arizona essentially uh, and might end up trading another outfielder because they have something of a surplus there. What they really need is corner infielders, uh, especially a third baseman and a shortstop, and the market is extremely weak at those positions. So if if Towers looked at it and said, hey, look, I have $15 million to spend my owners aren't going to allow me to just roll that over to next year. I need to spend it. Uh, he might have looked and said, you know, I might as well spend on a, on a reliever, try and build up one of these bullpens that can, you know, be complete shutdown, seventh, eighth, ninth inning um, kind of relief scores like the Cardinals have, uh, allow my starters only have to go six or seven innings in order to get a win. Um, it's not a terrible idea. I think the execution of, of Bell being that seventh inning guy is, is a little strange. I think if, he, if they hadn't made this move, uh, they could have dangled 213 in front of a whole bunch of decent relievers this winter and got someone younger, better, cheaper than Keith Bell. With regard – okay, so now Chris Young is gone. Chris Young um, has had good seasons. He's had some difficult seasons. Um, uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that, on the one hand, uh, he's quite athletic and hits for power. On the other hand, um, he uh, does not have terrific contact abilities and has been injured. Uh, that leaves – the Diamondbacks with, in their outfield, Gerardo Parra, 
I guess they still have Justin Upton, of course, and yeah. um, uh, Jason Kubel, maybe. Does he still play for that team? Yeah, and, and they're planning on giving Adam Eaton the starting center field job, which is why they wanted to get rid of Chris Young. So right now it's probably Kubel and left, uh, Para and Eaton splitting time in center, and then Para will play some left as well, and Upton and right. And, you know, there's still a chance they trade Justin Upton, um, but my sense is they don't really want Para to be an everyday guy, and so Para, Kubel, and and Eaton are kind of sharing two jobs between the three of them. Uh, Eaton was uh, pretty excellent, uh, both at uh, both at AAA. Of course, that was on the strength of a of a BABIP north of 400, uh, and he was also uh, pretty excellent d- during his um, hundred or so plate appearances in the minor or at uh, with Arizona. Uh, of course, that was on the strength of a walk rate. Uh, nearing 14%, which generally isn't something you see uh, players doing who hit home runs um, as infrequently as Eaton does. I mean, what is Eaton's, I guess, what do you sort of see for him as a, as a player there, and is he going to match Chris Young um, in so doing? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with Eaton is the question of power. So, you know, his uh, minor league numbers are awesome, but the PPL is a fantastic place to hit. The Diamondbacks triple A. Park in Reno is a super fantastic place to hit. So you have to really drag down every offensive performance there to a large degree. Um, even the little guy who um, scouts have never projected a lot of power for, he's kind of a you know a little bit of a tweener, and he, he doesn't uh, hit for as much power as you'd expect from a guy, or as you'd want from a guy who's a regular everyday player on a, on a team that wins. But he's also a good defender who can handle center field and draws walks, runs pretty well. Um, so, you know, you could see him as like a kind of a classic number two hitter, um, gets on base and, uh, has enough gap power to be Shane Vicrino. I mean, I think that's the idea of what Adam Eaton could be. And, you know, Vicrino is a three, four win player for quite a while who's also kind of missed by scouts. So if Eaton turns into that, I think that that's a really nice, uh, piece for the Diamondbacks future. I just, I'm not sure they, they had to get rid of Chris Young in order to have Adam Eaton. Like, it doesn't seem like an either or to me. They could have just, you know, shipped off Kubel and uh, installed Eaton in left field and had two good defensive center fielders playing next to each other and gotten even more range and helped out guys like Ian Kennedy. And, uh, you know, it's what they did a few years ago when they had a fantastic outfield defense and their pitching was really good. And then for whatever reason, Kubel, uh, Towers decided to go away from that last winter and signed Kubel and downgraded the defense and the pitching got worse. And, you know, I think we know that these things go hand in hand and why the the Diamondbacks kind of feel at this point that they need to give it back to Jason Kubel is a little bit beyond me. Okay, and then, uh, uh, so what this does for Oakland is something strange, and uh, Jackie Moore addressed this in a piece uh, this morning at the site, is that uh, the, so the Oakland A's were not really hurting uh, for pitching at this point, or sorry, for outfield depth at this point. Uh, they had, in fact, you know, you might suggest a log jam, uh, and now they have another outfielder. Uh, so Chris Young is a capable center fielder. Coco Crisp has been a capable center fielder. Ioannis uh, Suspedes is probably not a center fielder, but above average corner outfielder. And similar idea for Josh Reddick, too. So that's curious. Yeah, I mean, someone's getting traded there. This is like clearly not the last move that Billy Beam's going to make all winter. My guess is he's probably already got a deal lined up for Crisp, or at least has an interested party who's made him an offer that he's told them he'll consider and get back to them. And I would be surprised if Coco Chris began the year in Oakland next year. I wouldn't be surprised to see him ship him off to Tampa Bay or Washington or um, maybe even Atlanta, one of these teams that's going to be looking for a center fielder this year and might not want to spend a lot of money on Michael Bourne. Um, and I think you could probably 
market crisp as a, as a nice short-term, low-cost uh, center field stopgap for a team that's contending that doesn't want to spend a lot of money. Um, so I think that that's an option. Um, but even if they ship off crisp, I think they're still in a, a situation where they have a bit of a log jam because I think, you know, you look at DH, you've got Seth Smith, Chris Carter, uh, Brandon Moss. I mean, you've got a lot of options there. Um, so outfielder, you know, you can't really move one of your outfielders like Suspendus or or Reddick to DH on days that you have too many guys playing the outfield. Um, you know, I think that they, they need to probably move at least one guy. That's probably Chris, and then maybe another guy. I mean, you know, they don't have room for all these uh, outfield DH types they have on the roster. So I think we're, we're in an interesting situation where after years and years of DAs not being able to hit, they have too many hitters. Well, I guess, yeah, and uh, that's maybe a, a, a problem that Billy Bean does not mind having at this point, I guess. And then right, this it, it, through. it's certainly not a problem they've had in recent years. Um, you know, you mentioned the center field. I, of course, we're doing the contract crowdsourcing project um, at the site. Uh, we did we did uh, half of it last week. We're finishing up uh, the second half this week. Tomorrow, Tuesday, will be the center fielders. We're talking about the center field class a little bit. That's that's a pretty strong class. Uh, uh, it's sort of a bunch of different types of players. Of course, you know, Josh Hamilton um, is probably the most notable, but but Michael Bourne. Uh, B.J. Upton, Shane Victorino, and Angel or Angel Pagan um, are all uh, serviceable. I mean, it's average to above average, at least for 2013. Uh, you know, um, a couple of those guys are getting older, but they're not very old yet. Right. I mean, this is a, if you want to buy a center fielder, this is the year to do it. And there are five good free agent center fielders uh, who you wouldn't mind investing a decent amount of money in. Um, so I think, you know, if you're a, a team like the Nationals who have had a bit of a hole in center field um, and kind of want to move Bryce Harper or Jason Morris back to a corner full-time and have a, a rangy guy out in center field, this is the market for you. I mean, you've got a lot of options, um, and you can kind of go get the kind of player you want, probably at a little bit of a depressed price because there's going to be more teams looking for um, positions other than center fielder, and there's a lot of center fielders available. So um, I think, you know, for the Nationals or, or the Braves, this is a, a pretty good winner for them to go shopping for a new center fielder. And I think, you know, one or two of these guys are probably going to end up coming in as pretty good values. Probably Pagan would be my guess, or Victorino. Those would be the two that I think are, are most likely to, to return, um, you know, value above what they signed for. Uh, but I wouldn't be totally shocked if Josh Hamilton also ended up with a little bit of a value considering how he struggled in the second half of the year, the fact that Texas doesn't really seem interested in bringing him back, but it doesn't seem to be an obvious landing spot for him. Where, you know, I mean, if the Nationals really wanted to dig it crazy and do something interesting, and uh, you know, sign Hamilton and kind of use him and and uh, Harper and Worth as like a you know three kind of sort of center field or outfield, you know, hoping that the range of the guys in the corners would make up for the fact that they have a true center fielder, you know, all of a sudden that lineup gets pretty interesting. Uh, last thing, Cameron, uh, I'll let you go. I know you, you're doing very important things all the time. Um, there was another trade. This is the half a trade, perhaps, is that it appears as though uh, the Red Sox have reacquired who uh, John Farrell, uh, who was their pitching coach and is now uh, their manager, and they've had to trade away, if I'm not mistaken, Mike Avilas in the process. Yeah, Avilas went to Toronto as compensation for Farrell. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... Um, that seems strange. Uh, I guess the, are the Red Sox then just banking on the fact that Jose Iglesias is a um, major league ready shortstop? I don't know. I mean, I know that like there's been some outcry from Boston fans about how this is a ridiculous price to pay for a manager, and uh, you know, I guess it, 
I just don't see Michael Gillis as anything special. I know he's a little bit of a sabermetric darling because the Royals misused him when he was there, and um, guys like Randy Javerly have, you know, made him the poster boy for what Dayton Moore has done wrong. Uh, but, you know, I think Mike Avilas is a platoon infielder who's going to be 32 next year to arbitration eligible. <laughs> I don't really know how much value uh, we think of that a guy like Avilas has. He can mash lefties, and he can play a passable shortstop, which makes him a, a useful role player. But he's replaced the level against right-handers, uh, and that's 75% of the game. So, you know, if you're a winning team, you shouldn't be playing Mike Avilas against right-handers. He should probably only get 250, 300 plate appearances a year. Um, and if you're going to have to pay $3 million or whatever it is that he's going to get in arbitration because he was a full-time shortstop last year, um, you know, he might even get three and a half, four million. Uh, that's too much for a part-time platoon infielder. So for me, I think the Red Sox just kind of found a guy on the roster that didn't have a lot of asset value that the Blue Jays could use and said, here, look, this isn't the guy we value that much. We don't think he's got much more of a future in the majors. Uh, he's kind of a fringe guy heading into his mid-30s, uh, and he's about to get expensive. So here you go. All right. Hey, Cameron, uh, lovely to talk to you. I use that word uh, broadly, but, you know, decent to talk to you at least. Right, yes. Well, I'll, I'll accept decent. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, thanks uh, Thanks for your stick around for a second. But uh, uh, that's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. Uh, I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Hey.